Thank you so much for that prayer, Pastor John. And good evening, everybody. It is great to see all of you guys here. Um, if you will, please open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we'll be reading from 17 down to 25. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 to 25. And if you are able, uh, go ahead and please rise for the reading of God's word. Tonight's uh, title of the sermon is Supporting and Ministering to Your Pastors. Supporting and Ministering to Your Pastors. This is what the Apostle Paul has to say. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels who observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because uh, excuse me, <clears throat> because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Some people's sin are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. With all that said, let's go to our Lord God in prayer once again. Lord, I just want to say thank you, Lord, for allowing me to wake up this morning and and Lord, I just want to thank you so much, Lord, for our pastors, Pastor Josh, Pastor Steve, and Pastor John. Lord, I am thankful, Lord, for their hard work and their service, Lord. Lord, I just also want to say, Lord, thank you, Lord, for their families, Lord, for supporting them and encouraging them in their calling. Lord, tonight's message is going to be a heavy message. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts will not grow cold. Lord, I just pray, Father, that everyone here will understand the magnitude of this passage here and understand our responsibility to support and to minister to our pastors. Lord, I just want to say, Lord, carry me through this. Remove me and let your word shine. I just want to say, Lord, I love you. And I thank you so much for all that you have done. And I am thankful so much for those who are here and those who are hearing this word, Lord. I pray, Father, that they will be blessed by it. And we thank you so much in Jesus Christ's name and all the God's people say, amen. So church, the point of this message is that the Apostle Paul teaches that the church is to honor, to minister, and to discipline the church elders. Let me repeat that. Paul teaches that the church is to honor, to minister, and to discipline church elders. Let me kind of open this up with a 
series of questions to kind of really get our hearts prepared for this message here because it is very important. As I said in this prayer, it is heavy. It is heavy. And I just pray that we do not take it lightly. My first question is, what is the church role when an elder is in sin? The second question, what role does the congregation play in the appointment of church elders? And then my last question is, how can the church support and minister to their pastors? Church, these are essential questions or issues that must be addressed because many Christians think that the pastors slash elders oversee ministering to the congregation, which is correct. It is absolutely correct. But nonetheless, congregations are responsible for ministering to pastors. If we are really being honest with ourselves, church, we know that pastors are not perfect. They make mistakes. They get frustrated and often want to give up. To really kind of sink this in, I want to share with you a recent article I read about American pastors and ministry. The article provided statistics on the health of pastors in the American churches. Now, according to statistics, there are about 1,700 pastors that leave the ministry per month. Let that sink in. 1,700 pastors that leave the ministry per month. That is about 20,400 per year. And that is due to burnout, moral fa failure, or other reasons. Never share with you another statistic. 50% of pastors leave their positions within five years. Within five years. These figures show that some American churches fail to what? They fail to follow Paul's instructions to honor and to minister to their pastors and to discipline. When, church, when the church fails to follow the instructions of the Apostle Paul, it results in various negative repercussions. You see, when pastors quit the church because they quit the church because they are burnt out, that is because the congregation has failed to support them. When pastors are removed from ministry because of moral fa failings, well, it's due to because the congregation has failed to minister and discipline. Look, church, when the church fails to obey Paul's command, the following will happen, and it has happened. The church spiritual growth and discipline will suffer, and the gospel of Jesus Christ will suffer. The congregation must heed to the Apostle Paul's instructions, which is given here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, to honor, to support, to minister to our pastors. You see, doing so benefits the pastors and their families and contributes to the church health, unity, and effectiveness. It reflects the love and care and obedience to the biblical principles essential for the church flourishing and its mission and its mission in spreading the gospel. I want to share some insights from the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy here tonight. 
Paul gives Timothy some practical instructions on relating to the church elders and dealing with sin and how to minister to pastors and dealing with accusations in the ministry. And Paul begins by saying this. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And the worker is worthy of his wages. You see, in verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul guides Timothy to and the church about the treatment of elders. I want to call to your attention to the word elders in the beginning of verse 17. The Apostle Paul uses the plural word elders to refer to a group of leaders within the church. This mirrors the early church communities and many churches, uh, many church practices of having a plurality of elders rather than a single pastor. This is significant, church. It is very significant because some churches follow the Moses model in which one man oversees the entire church. On the other hand, the New Testament portrays a model of shared leadership. It's the plurality of elders. It's a shared leadership. There is no such thing as a one-man rule or show. Shared leadership is crucial for accountability and encouragement. The one-leader model presents more significant challenges. There are greater spiritual temptations, spiritual attacks, and vulnerabilities to loneliness and sadness. However, there are certain advantages to shared leadership model for the church. You see, shared leadership, also known as plural eldership, creates a mutual accountability among leaders regarding spiritual accountability. They can encourage and challenge one another in their spiritual journeys and leadership roles. And so I just want to offer three instances of how shared leadership can help the church. The first one is wisdom and experience. Wisdom and experience. Different elders may contribute to the leadership team with different gifts, views, and experiences. This diversity could improve the quality of the quality of leadership and pastoral care. The second is error prevention. Error prevention. A group of elders can assist in protecting the church from doctrinal errors, moral shortcomings, and other concerns that may develop. They can hold one another responsible for the biblical principles as given here in God's word. And then lastly, I want to share with you is the stability and succession. Stability and succession. Plural eldership creates a structure for planning stability and succession. When one elder stands down or retires, others can continue to provide spiritual advice and leadership. And I think that's very important because then the life of the church continues. It doesn't stop. There is no standstill. There's no postponement. It continues. I just want to briefly uh, mention that I've preached at churches where you see a lot of the older folks are, uh, that are handling all the leadership roles. But then where's the young Timothys? They have no one there to continue the ministry. And as a result, the ministry suffers. The gospel suffers. Now, Paul's use of the plural uh, elders 
in verse 17 reflects the New Testament pattern of church leadership, which involves a team of leaders that's overseeing, shepherding the congregation. This practice is based on the biblical principles, such as those found in the likes of uh, in scriptures of Acts 14:23 and Titus chapter 1 verses 5 and 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 2. It emphasizes the importance of, appo- of appointing multiple elders to serve the church. And the primary job of the elders is to what? It is to provide effective leadership for the church to provide effective leadership for the church. The church elders, which Paul says, who are good leaders, are good at what? Are good at visioning, managing the finances, and ministries, and caring for the sheep. It does include teaching and preaching. The elders who provide effective leadership should be considered what? Worthy of double honor. Double honor. Now let's take a minute to discuss the word double honor. The word honor in the original language incorporates the idea of a cost and reimbursement or reimbursement. In English, we also associate honor with the concept of compensation by using the noun honorarium. Sorry, honorarium. I practice this so much. Honorarium. Okay, that's the best that I can do. Which means a payment for unbilled professional services. Paul believed that loyal and hardworking shepherds of God's flock, <clears throat> excuse me, the church should be recognized by the congregation in two ways. In two ways, with proper honor and adequate compensation. The use of double honor by Paul is most likely related to the double portion that is allocated for the oldest son in the, ho- in, in the household. So when you look into Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 17, which I'll read before you right now, it reads, He must acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the neglected wife, by giving him two shares of his estate. For he is the first fruits of his manhood. He has the rights of the firstborn. You see, being the firstborn provided both respect and financial reward. In the New Testament, double honor refers to a high level of respect and obedience from the church members and fair pay, fair compensation. The Greek word for double literally means twofold, twofold. The first fold, the Apostle Paul instructs the the, the church, the elders who lead well, who are good leaders, should be esteemed and respected by church members. This includes acknowledging their commitment, wisdom, and spiritual guidance. The congregation should hold these leaders in high regard and show appreciation for their service. Additionally, this honor involves showing gratitude for elders' efforts and when it comes to shepherding and, and, and nurturing the, the community's uh, spiritual growth. The second fold, it is here that that Paul's meaning of double honor becomes apparent in his following statement. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. The apostle Paul argued that if God provided for the hardworking ox, 
and his law, which you'll find in Deuteronomy 25.4, members of the church body should, what? Should show a significant concern for their spiritual leaders. The worker is worthy of his wages. Paul says in the second statement, which is like Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where he says, for the worker, what? Deserves his wages. I know there was a lot that's impacting there. But let me say this. Unfortunately, many churches believe that pastors should be paid the bare minimum. They think pastors should not possess homes or drive new cars or the children should not attend private school. Indeed, let me just say this, indeed, pastors should not serve in the ministry for financial gain. For one of the qualifications of eldership is that they are not greedy, right? We find it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. The ministry is not a place to seek wealth and, and luxury. Pastors should be what? Self-sacrificing, right? But, but congregations should be empathetic. God is not concerned let me just put it. God is, God is concerned not just with the sheep, but also with the shepherds. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse, uh, verses two and th- uh, 12 and 13, it reads, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you, meaning that they, should, they deserve respect. They labor. Among you, they work hard. These are good leaders. And so they deserve your respect. They deserve recognition. Who lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Once again, their work, their labor, their work. They're working hard for you. They're working hard for us. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, it reads that those who are, those who Those who are taught the word of God should provide for what? For who? For the teachers, for their pastors. Sharing all good things with them. So what does that mean for the church? I know it's a lot of information, but what does that mean for the church? Let me tell you what that means. It means that the church must guard against overworking and underpaying dedicated pastors. Failure to effectively support them demonstrates what? A lack of honor. Let me just kind of back up what I just said in reading about the statistic in the articles. that There are 1,700 pastors that leave the church per month. And one of the reasons is due to a lack of support, a lack of honor. So the congregations, we we bear that responsibility. And you know what's, what's so sad about that? Especially when it comes to overworking and underpaying dedicated pastors who work hard. Is that the congregations take advantage of that. They take advantage of of their pastor. Because you know why? Because like I mentioned before in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, that the pastor is not greedy. So think, if the pastor feels like he's being underpaid and he's trying to go to the congregation, it's like, look, 
I'm, I'm getting the bare minimum. Like, we're barely making it by. Who suffers? The pastor. But who else suffers too? The families, the wife, the children, they suffer. But somehow the churches will use that against them. So the pastor can't say anything because they don't want to be uh, uh, accused of, or, or to be uh, disqualified because of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. So what do pastors do? They, they remain quiet. They remain silent. And then when it's just too much, they leave. It's just like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. They leave the ministry. It's sad when that happens. I know that some might give, give me pushback and say, well, in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, Paul supported himself in the ministry by working as a tent maker. But look, <laughs> he saw this as the exception rather than the rule. I already provided scriptures that show that the church is to compensate the pastors. Scripture teaches that receiving financial support from the congregations they serve is appropriate and necessary. Just as a laborer, what? Is rightfully, uh, is rightfully to get their payment from their employer. When we have a lack of support for pastors, or I should say, by neglecting to minister to our pastors, is that the church fails to provide them with the necessary support and encouragement to fulfill the roles effectively. You see, pastors often face numerous challenges. Let me just get down to the little bit of the work that they do here. Because pastors often face numerous challenges, including spiritual warfare, emotional strain, and the weight of the responsibility for leading and shepherding a congregation. Because when they do not receive proper care from the church, uh, from the church community, they may become what? They may become discouraged, burnt out or even tempted to abandon their calling. This is the result of the uh, decline in the pastoral effectiveness, uh, potentially lead to a, a high turnover rate in church pastors. So churches are always turning over pastors. So you got to ask the question. It's like, why is there such a, a huge turnover at a particular church when a pastor's only been, uh, like every two years, it's, it's always a turnover, right? Well, it's because there's a lack of support in that, in that ministry. That could be. But in my mind, I'm thinking that's probably, that's it. It's just too much work. It's too much demand. In verse 17, it provides a clear guidance on, on how elders who lead well should be treated within the church community. The double honor concept encompasses spiritual respect and mutual uh, material provision for these leaders. By understanding and applying these biblical principles, the church can ensure that its elders receive the recognition and support and encouragement they need to effectively fulfill their roles in guiding and shepherding God's people. When it comes down to it, God is, is asking us to give fair and adequate compensation that they deserve recognition for the work that they do, for the examples that they provide, for the spiritual growth when it comes to managing the finances, when it comes to even managing their own homes, when it comes to an array of assortments, right? These lights in this building just didn't just happen, right? The ministries that didn't just appear, right? It's a result of the pastors. 
I wish that we can have more full-time pastors here. I wish that Pastor Josh can be on full-time. And I just, I'm just using you as an example because, like, my heart goes out to you. Because he's a man that puts in 50 to 60 hours a week at his job. And he's a man that goes home and he provides for his family. He ministers to his family. But yet he comes here, too, here at the church. He ministered to us with the word. He comes here and he ministers to us to the, uh, when it comes to leading worship and a bunch of variety of other, other things when it comes to counseling, things that we just don't see. And please, guys, I'm not trying to take anything away from Pastor Steve or Pastor John because these are great pastors, like I said from the beginning. But I'm just saying that I want Pastor Josh to be on full time because it benefits the church. And it not only benefits the church, but it benefits his family. In verse 19, it reads, Do not accept the accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. It is here that the Apostle Paul then shifts his focus to handling accusations against elders. In verse 19, it advises that accusations against an elder should, be, uh, should not be accepted unless there are two or three witnesses. So we need to ask ourselves the question. Well, we need, well yeah, we need to ask ourselves the question. Why there must be two or three witnesses? Why is that so important? Why is that vital? Why does Paul mention that? Well, the requirement of two or three witnesses is a principle that is actually rooted in the Old Testament and is also reflected in other parts of the New Testament. So when it comes down to the principle of requiring two or three witnesses, it can be, like I mentioned, goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to Deuteronomy 19.15. In Deuteronomy 19.15, and I'll read this for you. The verse states, one witness cannot establish any crime or sin against a person. Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Let me just read that again. One witness cannot establish any crime or sin against a person. Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of who? By two or three witnesses. The principle was, the found, uh, was foundational in Israelite law, in the Israelite law, and it protected against false accusation and unjust judgments. Furthermore, the demand for several witnesses can be found in the New Testament. So, for example, when teaching about conflict resolution within the Christian community, Jesus spoke to this principle, and we find that in Matthew chapter 18, uh, starting at verse 16. For Jesus said, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may, uh, may be established by the evidence of who? By two or three witnesses. Here, Jesus emphasizes the importance of collaborating testimony when addressing disputes among believers. The need for two or three witnesses serves multiple necessary purposes when dealing with allegations against elders. For starters, it promotes fairness and justice in the handling of accusations. By requiring several witnesses, there is a safeguard against 
false and, uh, uh, and malicious charges that can affect an elder's reputation and status in the community. This is consistent with the broader biblical ideas that emphasizes fairness and truthfulness. The demand here in verse 19 for two or three witnesses reflects a greater biblical emphasis on justice. As I don't want to, <laughs> we got to have justice. There's, there's, we see many injustices in the world, but justice is not executed. And that's also been happening in the church, in some churches. Fairness and responsibility among, once again, the Christian communities. Look, in a nutshell, where Paul is getting at is like, look, do not entertain accusations against an elder without evidence from two or three witnesses. Church, churches minister to pastors by protecting them from false accusations. One of the many tactics that Satan will use is false accusation against a pastor. And we need to be very methodical when it comes to accusations. I have been um, part of many people that would accuse a pastor and it's done falsely. Look, I've, I've, I've been accused. I've been falsely accused. Look, when you're the guy that's in, in charge of benevolence, everyone wants to be your best friend. And once you help them out, you, you know, and everything else like that. But then when I hold them to the, to the biblical mandate and I'm just like, look, you, you haven't even followed the plan. Look, brother, look, brother, I'm, I'm sorry. We, we cannot hold, we, we cannot help you. Then the anger begins to be directed towards me. It's no longer, oh, hey, hi, Pastor Thomas, Brother Thomas, you're a great guy and all that stuff. No, they're not even wanting to talk to me. And all of a sudden, I go to an elders meeting and, and someone had uh, accused me uh, of, of not uh, biblically serving an individual. But the great thing about, you know, when I was a, a in the plurality of elders, which is a good thing, a shared leadership, is that um, we have meetings, and so I would tell them about the dealings when it comes to benevolence. Everything is very transparent. And so when I tell them, it's like, hey, I worked with so-and-so. This is the plan that we have uh, talked about. They have agreed upon it, and they know that if they do not follow the plan, that they're not going to receive any type of church funds. So... I worked with them. We came up with the plan. It was in full agreement. The elders knew about it. They signed off on it, and we were good to go. But then there are also a lot of serious false accusations that goes on, too. So we need to be very careful, and we also need to protect our pastors. In verse 20 and 21, Paul says, Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice and doing nothing out of favoritism. As a part of the church ministry, uh, as, as, as church minister to uh, elders, they must be held accountable lovingly. Pastors are not perfect and must be challenged when they sin. According to Paul, 
Elders who sin should be corrected in front of everyone. He then commands Timothy to obey these instructions before God, Christ, and the angels. The ministry of rebuking elders is essential to both God and the church. When elders continue to sin, when they continue to sin, they disgrace God and pose a vast stumbling barrier for believers and unbelievers. Thus, discipline must be handled properly. Remember, properly. Some church, some church members may be perplexed by Paul's public rebuke, since it appears to contradict Christ's instruction in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and 17, on how to deal with sinful, sinful uh, church members. So let me read this. Let me read that to you. Starting in uh, Matthew 18, 15, starting at 15. It says that uh, Jesus said that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him, tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, uh, listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Sinning elders should be approached 101 according to Matthew 18. If they do not listen, bring two or three people to check the facts. If they still don't listen or do not listen, it should be dealt with openly in front of the congregation. If they refuse to listen, then what? They should be expelled, excommunicated from the congregation, from the church. A public rebuke may be the first step if the sin is public. If the sin is public. Let me give you an example. When Peter sinned by saying hypocritically in his treatment of the Gentile Christians, Paul publicly what? He rebuked him because everyone was aware of the sin. Everyone was aware of the sin. Paul's rebuke of Peter in Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 was a significant event that highlighted the importance of of doctrinal purity, church unity, and the apostolic authority in the early church communities. The rebuke served as a reminder that the gospel message of salvation is for all people, regardless of their background or heritage, and that the unity in the church must be grounded in shared faith in Christ rather than adherence to Jewish customs or laws. And that's basically what Peter was doing. He was placating to the, Jew, to the Jewish people, to the, yeah, to the Jewish people, rather than just kind of hanging out with the, with the Gentile community. And it posed a problem. So once again, let me just state this. If the sin is public, a public rebuke may be the first step. So in the case of Peter, his sin was public because everyone was aware of it. In fact, the followers of Peter acted hypocritically along with Peter. They, they, they followed his lead. You see how one person's sin can manifest and and spread? And so Paul, he's like, no, 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 we're not going to have that. That's not according to the gospel. So Peter, I mean, so Paul rebuked Peter. So this is a very important question we need to ask ourselves here. Is that how should the church hold the pastor accountable? 
What, is it, what does that mean for us? Look, church, though challenging, this must be done when dealing with the pastor. If the church does not deal with the elder sin biblically, but instead hides or, cover, or covers it up, Satan can sow havoc in the church through gossip, rumors, and disobedience. This is typical in congregation where pastors' wrongdoing, wrongdoing stays hidden, and often for years. This mismatch between the pastor's preaching and behavior eventually drives many people away from Christ, and the church may even implode and much to Satan's joy. This is, I've seen this firsthand experience, firsthand experience, where you got elders in the church. This was a plurality of elders, I have to say. And they failed to hold this one man accountable to sin. When he's stealing money from the church, the elders hid it, they covered it up, and it was years before the church even knew about it. A church of 700 members. We had a Saturday night service. We had a, a, a two, two Sunday morning services. And as a result of that cover-up and the church found out, it did implode. Saturday night service, I mean, I think they still have Saturday night service, but when I remember when I was there, Saturday night, night, night service, which carried maybe about 200 uh, church members out of 10, it dwindled down to like probably five or 10 people. Two Sunday morning service, reduced down to one. And we probably had like, that was probably our most attended service, we probably have you know, at the time I remember probably like 150 to 200. But at one point we had 700 members. And you know, the, 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 the thing is, is that there, there were faithful church members that have found out and was, was, uh, actually, uh, uh, calling this uh, particular pastor uh, about his sin. And, and the, the elders just kept covering up. I remember at the church meeting that the elders stood up in front and, and they said that they, the reason why they covered it up is because they were afraid because they, they would lose members, church members. <laughs> they were afraid to lose church members. You know, like I've been um, studying uh, Luke chapter 14, uh, 25 uh, down to 35. And it, 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 in that title or, uh, or that passage deals with the cost of following Jesus. And in verse 25, when Jesus had multiple of people, large people, maybe more than 5,000, 10,000, because of the miracles that he was doing, because of the words that he was preaching, and you know what Jesus Christ did? He turned around and he said, for anyone that wants to be my disciple must hate his mother, his father, his family, and even his own life. If you cannot, you cannot be my disciple. Just think about that. Why would you, it seems like every pastor is all about today about acquiring members. I was so appalled by that because I'm just like, that's completely the opposite of what Jesus Christ did. 
He turned to the crowds and many of the crowds left because it was a hard saying. At one point, Jesus had many disciples and he was like, if you can't eat of my blood or uh, can't drink of my blood or eat of my flesh, you can't be a part of me. Oh, man, that's too hard, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. So they leave. That showed me that these elders are not committed to Christ. Because when it comes to the, uh, the cost of, of following Christ, he wants committed believers. He doesn't want fans. So let me digress because <laughs> I'm going on to a whole other sermon. But I, I pray and hope that you kind of get what's going on here. That when, when you're not being kingdom-minded, that those are the things you, that you're so worried about as being earthly-minded, that the worry about the, the church members. The church is instructed to hold elders accountable through the process that involves rebuke and public confrontation when necessary. This approach is intended to serve as a deterrent to others and maintain the integrity of the church leadership. It is important to note that this process should be carried out with the spirit of humility and genuine desire for restoration rather than condemnation. Condemnation. Okay, so I put down a little note so I wouldn't forget. When it comes to disciplining elders, elders are to, to discipline the elders. You know, so they, they initiate it, they, they do the talk to do the investigation, and then they bring the facts before the church, and that's what the facts are there before the church as regarding to uh, if a person, if a pastor has sinned, then, the, you know, with, with the presented facts, you know, obviously, if there's an establishment of two or three witnesses and all that stuff, so they're, they're all the facts, then we as a church are to take a vote on that pastor. So I just wanted to highlight that. The involvement of, of God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels highlight the gravity of holding elders accountable. Paul wrote in verse 20, he's like, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice and doing nothing out of favoritism. Doing nothing out of favoritism. It serves as a reminder that this process is, is not merely a human endeavor. This is not about how many members you got in your church. And that's the reason why we didn't want to uh, 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 present this, uh, uh, this hideous sin before the church. This is not a human endeavor, but it is carried out under divine authority. That's why Paul mentioned this. He goes on to say, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. This is divine authority that he's speaking of here. Discipline must be carried out. It must be carried out. And this is what God says. It must be carried out without prejudice. It must be carried out without prejudice which can be interpreted as without partiality. Now, perhaps Timothy might, might be especially severe towards people who have previously heard him in the church, which may invoke prejudice. And I'm saying that because I was thinking, it's just like, well, why, why would Paul say this here? Or maybe it doesn't have to even have to do with Timothy specifically because there was other elders in the church that were just really bad apples. 
Or I should say that, 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 that since Paul had experienced this bad behavior or among, you know, the prejudice when it comes to uh, uh, rebuking, maybe he was thinking about everyone in his time. All the other pastors who may take this to a whole nother level that they shouldn't. What about us today? What about future pastors? Right? I think it was meant for everyone. Discipline must be carried out without prejudice. Paul goes on to continue that discipline must be administered without favoritism. Without favoritism, perhaps a person is hesitant to expose the sin of a close friend who is who's, uh, who is very popular, influential, or wealthy. However, there must be no bias in the disciplinary procedure. Remember, God, Christ, and the angels are looking on. They're looking at us. They're observing us. It's so. I think a lot of times we can forget that God is watching us. That the Holy Spirit is, is within us. So the Holy Spirit knows. And that the angels, the elect angels are observing these things. Are we going to do the right thing by following God's divine authority? Or are we going to make it our own thing? The ultimate goal, I just want to say, and this is important, the ultimate goal is not punishing action, but it comes down to reconciliation and spiritual growth. Going back to the example with Paul and Peter, Paul wasn't just trying to slam them down and trying to make them look bad in front of everybody there. He wanted them to be reconciled with the gospel message. Peter has strayed away from the gospel message and Paul was pulling him back. Hey, you need to get back into the relationship of the gospel message. You can't be doing this. You cannot. And then it also causes spiritual growth because Peter now realizes like, yeah, you're right, Paul. What I did was wrong. It was sinful. And I appreciate you telling me this because now I can grow from this. Verse 22, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as elders and don't share the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Timothy is advised not to be hasty in, in ordaining individuals as elders. When appointing elders in the church, Paul instructs Timothy to act with caution and discernment. This lesson highlights the significance of thoroughly assessing a person's character, behavior, and spiritual maturity before entrusting them with the leadership responsibilities. The need to exercise caution in selecting elders it should remind us, church, of how it is best to choose from within the congregation. I say that because... In my previous church, it's just like you have a guy that the church don't know. And I remember pastor going up there and he's just selling him to the church. Well, he's done this. He's got this degree. He's this and that. But no one doesn't know him because he's just coming on board as a pastor.
When we studied the specific requirements for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and also in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 and 9, look, it can be challenging to recognize these qualities in a candidate outside the church. So someone on the outside, we, get, we got to ask ourselves several questions. Do they generally manage their household well? Are they sensible to their interactions with the opposite sex? Are they good with their money? Are there peacemakers or, or, or conflict-prone individuals? But we don't know that because they just showed up out of the blue. These distinctions are difficult to make when one attends the same church. And unfortunately, recommendations from others often only addresses the, uh, the best, yeah, so, sorry, only addresses the best in the person and fail to address the worst. When it comes down to Paul saying uh, when it, the, the expression of don't share in the sins of others, it emphasizes the importance of leaders maintaining personal integrity and avoiding involvement in, uh, in others' misbehaviors. Timothy could be uh, tempted to swiftly select someone for leadership because he would need to remove some elders. And there have been elders that have been removed. Uh, in chapter 1, it was Alexander and um, uh, Hamaeus that was removed. However, Paul warns against it. Timothy would be uh, would, would primarily primarily uh, would be accountable for their faults if he appointed someone unworthy to lead them. So basically, if you get someone who is not proven and you appoint them by laying hands upon them and they're a church elder and all of a sudden they commit all these egregious, egregious sins, Timothy's held accountable to that. Although that he didn't, you know, commit those crimes, but he's held accountable because he appointed a, I wouldn't say pastor, someone who was just not qualified. A man should not be ordained as an elder until he is spiritually ready because if he lacks spiritual maturity, it opens the door for vicious attacks from Satan and ultimately God's discipline uh, if he fails into, into sin. You know, this reminds me of uh, years ago when I was down in San Diego and I visit, uh, visited Sovereign Word Christian Church. And um, I think for the first time I saw uh, Pastor Josh up there preaching and he wasn't an elder yet. And so I was talking with Steve in the vehicle and I was just like, well, who's this guy? <laughs> You know, and um, he was like, well, you know, he's a pastor. He pastored a church and they decided to merge with us. Um, but he's not an elder. He needs to be vetted. Right. So he went through the vetting process. I'm sure many of you guys probably have watched uh, Pastor Josh, uh, Pastor John. Sorry. <laughs> been vetted, you know, but the same way was with, uh, with Pastor Josh. Just because he was a pastor in another church doesn't mean that he can just come right in and just waltz right in. Oh, hey, I'm a pastor too, so that doesn't fly. Because if he created, if he committed some sins, then I think it was at the time it was Pastor Brian, you, yourself, and Mo. Okay. Oh, so it was just you and Mo. So they would be held accountable 
to Pastor Josh's sins, if he, if he became an elder and he committed all these sins, they would be held accountable. So I'll leave it as that. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. <laughs> um, in verses 23 and 25, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Some people's sins are obvious, proceeding, from, uh, proceeding them to judgment, but sins of others surface later. And then uh, verse 25, likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are, those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Um, in verse 23, Paul shows pastoral concern for Timothy while uh, well-being. He advises Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach, for his stomach elements. Um, commentators say it could, you know, the reason why he probably had these, uh, this, this illness or elements is, is probably due to a lot of stress. Uh, could be some hidden sickness or whatever the case may be that, that he had, uh, but they're not really for sure. But nonetheless, uh, Paul is, is, is taking particular uh, care for his young son. And this reflects a practical and caring approach to physical health. Look, church, it is a reminder that even those who engage in significant spiritual work, that they should attend to their physical needs. This verse emphasizes balance and, and moderation in our lives, including physical health. And by acknowledging Timothy's health struggles and, uh, and offering practical guidance, Paul demonstrates a compassionate, understanding approach to addressing the challenges faced by fellow believers. So church, we need to make sure that our pastors are healthy. <laughs> we should take great, uh, we should be sensitive in, in their health. Because if they, God forbids, were to die because of health reasons, and there could be, you know, a number of reasons, then that hurts the church. So, we, you know, if God allows it, we want them to live as long as they can live so that the gospel message may continue. Um, in verses, uh, verses 24 and 25, I just want to say that Paul's word reminds us, and this is very short, that he reminds us that our, our good and, and sinful actions have consequences, just as sins can be evident or concealed. So too can acts of righteousness. Therefore, let us strive to live with integrity and authentication and knowing that our deeds ultimately bear witness to our faith. It will bear witness to our faith. So I know this is a lot, and it was a lot of information, um, but I believe that it was absolutely necessary. So what is the application of all this? Well, as we delve into 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, we find that the Apostle Paul uh, providing crucial insights into the relationship between the church and its elders. He emphasizes the twin responsibilities of honoring and disciplining these elders and to ministering to them, and also recognizing the weight of the role when it comes to the body of Christ. So let me kind of just break this down. In first, starting at verse 17, I title this Honoring Our Elders. Paul instructs us to honor our elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This honor goes beyond mere respect. It involves recognizing the significant spiritual work they do for the congregation. So let us consider this. Let us consider this. One, let's, let us express appreciation express appreciation, that we take the initial steps to express gratitude 
for the spiritual guidance and teaching and, the, uh, uh, and leadership of our church elders. The second is support financially. Acknowledging the biblical principle of supporting our elders financially, enabling them to focus entirely on their ministry without distraction. We want them to continue to focus their ministry without, distract, without, without distraction. Because if they're distracted, then there is no spiritual growth. Their mind is on something else rather than on the things of God. And if, and if their minds are not on the things of God, then they're definitely not going to be on God's people. Third, is that we pray for them, that we pray for them. Regularly lift up our, our elders in prayer, asking for God's wisdom and strength and protection as they faithfully serve the church. Two, I want to say, is when it comes to verses 19 to 20, disciplining, disciplining with love and justice. Equally important to, uh, in the responsibility for us, church, look, discipline we got to discipline when necessary, and it must be carried out with the spirit of love and seeking restoration and maintaining the integrity of the church. Therefore, let us, what, speak in the truth and love, to speak the truth in love, that we approach conflicts and concerns with a commitment to speaking the truth in love, seeking resolution and reconciliation. The second I want to say is that to ensure fairness, to ensure fairness, uphold principles of justice and fairness when addressing accusations and avoiding uh, favoritism or prejudice. And then lastly is that we foster restoration. When discipline is necessary, do so with the ultimate goal of restoration, not condemnation. So once again, I'm going to highlight that because most people would be like, yeah, you're kicked out of the church and I hope you, you go to hell. That's the thing. That's condemnation. That's, we got to, believe me, I've, I've heard that so many times, um, and that really bothers me a lot. It, we, we should be in the, when it comes to love and grace and mercy, when it comes to forgiveness, that is the gospel message about reconciliation. And uh, sorry, it just, it just really brought up a memory of, of, of individual who was really torn by that. And although there was a recognition of, of, of sin and there's a forgiveness, but the church just condemned him. He wasn't even allowed back. So let us not be that example. And lastly, what I just want to hit is 22 and 25, and that is maintaining a blameless reputation. Paul reminds us of the importance of maintaining a blameless reputation. This applies not only to uh, elders, but every member of the church. So let us live with integrity, strive for personal holiness and integrity in our lives and recognizing the impact of our actions can, be, can have on, on the church witnesses. Let us encourage each other. Let us protect the church witness. Understanding that our individual actions contribute to the collective witness of the church and thus we must safeguard the reputation of God's body. Church, when the church fails to obey the Apostle Paul's instruction to minister to his pastors according to what we just read in 17 and 25, it will lead to an act of, or a lack of support for pastors, strained relationships within the church. We will continue to see pastors leave the ministry 
day by day. We cannot win, you know, uh, being in the military, it's hard to win a war without your generals, without your admirals. To hold everything together, to make sure that things are, are good, we cannot win the battle. The, the gospel message cannot go, for, cannot go far. And we've seen that decline in, Amer in America already, where sin is abounding. So with all that said, let me just leave with the gospel message. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it reads that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. In these verses, the essence of the gospel message is neatly articulated. Articulate it. Confession of Jesus as Lord. The gospel message begins with the personal declaration that Jesus is Lord. This confession acknowledges Jesus' lordship and the authority over one's life. The second is that there's a belief in the resurrection, that the gospel requires a deep, heartfelt belief that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And there is salvation through faith, that faith is at the core of the gospel message. Believing in the lordship of Jesus and his resurrection, it means that by which one is justified before God. And then there is a profession of faith, a confession that is an outward expression of an inward reality. Believers are called to openly profess their faith in Jesus. This public declaration is a demonstration of, a, of allegiance and identity with Christ. So with all I said, I pray for those who do not know Christ. I plead with you. Submit to the Lord. And as I said this as many times, then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Your sins will be, uh, will be made bare. It, it will be uh, up to account. Or, sorry. Getting a little tired. It would, it would, you know, it's, it's one of those things like in the morning, it's, it's easy to, to say, right, that Jesus is Lord, but I'm just really kind of taken back because I just don't want to just I'm just so captivated by the gospel of Luke, the cost of following Jesus. Look, the invitation is out there for you, and I want you to be saved. But I also want you to know that there is a cost. There is a cost that, that one day it may take up your life, that it will take up losing friends and family. It's going to require sacrifice. It's not going to be an easy road. And Jesus, we, we see that in the Gospels. If you take the time to read the Gospel and you see the, the, the humiliation that Jesus had to suffer, the persecution that he had to suffer, the abandonment that he had to suffer, 
I just don't want to say that it's going to be easy, that Jesus is Lord. Yes, he's, he says it, and, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But there is a cost. There is a commitment, a commitment to a life of repentance, a commitment of a surrendering to Christ in every aspect, in every field. You can't just sit there and just be like, yeah, I accept Christ. But you know what, Christ? You know, I'm not going to give you the master key. There's only a few doors I allow you to go in, Right? Or, yeah, I, I, I want you to do a few touch-ups in my home, but I don't want you to do a full restoration. He demands everything of you. And so if you, you have to consider the cost. And if you have considered the cost, then call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will come, and you will be saved. I just want you to take this seriously. So with that said, let us go to our Lord God in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this message, Lord. I just pray, Father, that I know it was a lot to say when it comes to this. 